I didn't feel safe and that I think was the hardest part is that my work was my safe place and all of a sudden I didn't feel safe at all because I felt like anything that I said could be taken out of context, that people were always going to find something negative in what I was trying to say and really stopped trusting my own ability to communicate and that's something I still struggle with two years later. Welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today, we're sitting down with Ash London. If you're unfamiliar with the name, Ash is a powerhouse in the radio industry, spearheading Ash London Live on the hit network nationally. When she's not behind a mic, she's busy carving out quite the career for herself across television too. Before we get stuck in, we should say that we sat down with Ash two days before her Sydney breakfast show with Ed Cavalier and Grant Daniel was axed. So keep that in mind in case those references to her current job get a little confusing. We did sit down with Ash in our Sydney hotel room to chat all about quitting your dream job, moving overseas in search of something more, and the beauty of serendipity. Here's Ash. I have a potty mouth. Where do we, draw we are so okay. fine on swearing. Okay. In okay. fact, we get told sometimes that we swear too much. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ash London, we will chop that out, but welcome to Shameless. <laughs> How are you today? I am so good, living my best life. It's a beautiful sunny day. I'm always happy when the sun's out. Yes, we are so currently watching a man on a roof in the hotel next to us. Yeah. Be a rope access technician. And- Although, how's that penthouse on the on the, on the the corner it's the- all crazy that's oh, rich people man. i feel like every time i come to sydney i think that we don't get days like this like we must but i always in think, melbourne yeah in melbourne I you don't i've lived in melbourne you don't <laughs> not here, not now not in july where are we august because it's not like in melbourne you would look out the window and it would look like that but then you get out and it would be crisp mm. but it's not crisp in Sydney, it's, you get the warmth of the air. So braggy. Yeah, but I am a Melbourne girl, so. But you said before we jumped on the mics that you Sydney's home to Sydney's you. home now, but I was born in Melbourne and I've spent, at this point, I will say half my life. Yeah, half my life in Melbourne. What is it about Sydney that makes it home? The beach, when I was in my 20s and first moved here for radio or TV at the time, I fell in love with the beach and it became like church for me. So I think, and the hours I was doing when I was always alone, so it was me and the beach alone and the sun and it just became my happy place. So now, like I don't even like going to cities where there's no water because I feel trapped. Mm. And when I go to Melbourne, like I love Melbourne, but I just miss the beach. I don't know, it's magic. Something about it is magic. I mean, we have beaches. You just need to travel a bit further. To get <laughs> it's <them>. true. They're <laughs> beautiful beaches, but I, you know, can can do work, go to work and then be at the beach 15 totally. minutes later in the ocean. And when I was doing night radio, I'd be late to work and be like, sorry, I got held up at a meeting. And they'd be like, you still have a wet bikini. <laughs> and, like, and your hair yes. is dripping. <laughs> <laughs> You're wrapped in a towel. <laughs> Ash, we start every interview with the same question, and that is to ask, is there anything you are reading, watching, listening to mm. at the moment that you would recommend? Yes. Enjoying? Yes. I've started reading. Well, first of all, anything by Brené Brown. I just saw mm-hmm. her last week and I met her. It was one of the best days of my life and I, I mean that. Um, so I'm I'm always reading something of hers for the fourth, fifth, sixth time. But I'm reading this book called The Body Keeps the Score and it's quite dense but it's all about the physical and emotional and psychological impacts of trauma on the body. So things that can happen to you as a child or as an adult and years and years later, the ways that that then imprints itself on you. Um, And so often we use antidepressants and and all that medicine, which is fantastic and we need it. Um, But so often we overlook dealing with the trauma and actually being honest about how much it can affect you, the cells in your body when traumatic things happen to you, which is very... um, Hollywood. But That's really <laughs> interesting, though. It's really interesting. What kind of podcast do you gravitate towards? Oprah. <laughs> I just listen to, like, Super Soul Conversations on repeat. I just listened to um, the one, it's called The Dropout, about Theranos, which was that um, the Elizabeth Holmes. That story is wild. It is wild. And when you listen to it, you're like, 
all of these people that should know better, people that have billion dollars and like investors and CEOs didn't do their due diligence. They just fell for this woman Mm. and poured money and there was no working technology. She just scammed them. Do you think she intended from the beginning to scam people or do you think she got herself in too deep and then created a web of lies to come Neither. She believed that she was doing something good but was so – I think she was such a narcissist that she refused to admit to herself that it wasn't working. Mm. You know, know, crazy people, they start to believe their lies. I think she honestly – like believe that it would eventually work because she couldn't fail, but she, like we all fail, mate. It's like the definition of fake it till you make it, but not in a good way. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but in the worst way. And you know she's married now to some like hotel heir, and she's going to have her like the criminal trial next year, so she, they, she could go to jail. The wow. HBO documentary on that is quite good too. I heard. I would recommend. It's got like the guy's grandson in it that like was the whistleblower. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I know, but I tell you, I'm, I'm usually am not consuming much, which sounds really bad. But mm. the last week or two, I've been a bit just like, nah. Well, you are creating a lot of content, so I think you can yeah. be forgiven for My that. My brain gets full, and there's noise, a lot of noise. Mm. You know, it's like Oprah doesn't listen to the radio. Well, there's lots of really successful people. We spoke to Emma Isaacs last week who said she doesn't read news because she's like, well, it's going to change tomorrow and I feel like my brain is full already. I just need to kind of push some stuff away. And and there's too much being fed to us. We can't take it all in. Mm. And radio, that's like our lives is you have to know everything. And so often I'm like 95% of what I read today, A, wasn't news and B, was really depressing. Like, I don't need to read about Trump anymore because it makes my heart hurt. And I'm like, but then I see the headline and I'm, like, clicking on the fucking article, (laughs) getting worked up. And I'm like, I could have just let this one go and gone for a walk, hugged my dog. Yeah. Ash, the second question we always ask is, what were you like as a child? Pretty much exactly the way I am now, but, like, louder. So I was, um, like, I would do Broadway shows. I loved musicals and Broadway. I had a brother's 10 years older than me so I was pretty much an only child so I spent a lot of time on my own reading I like obsessed with books um writing plays and novels and I was very much like a self-sufficient little creative um and just loved music from a really young age and I I was I I think I was a pain in the ass I think back to like me as like a precocious 12 year old and I'm like I think I was the kind of kid that if I saw that kid now I'd be like Ugh, like, Fuck what, that like, person. Uh, yeah, seriously, like, shush, go away. I think, I think that might, I think I have enough self awareness now to be like, yeah, <laughs> just a hunch. <laughs> I was that kid, um, but I think I've developed now my ability to like read a room, and um, yeah. You said in an interview with Stella Magazine that losing your dad at a mm. young age forced you to make a decision. You said, "Was I going to let it define me as a victim or fuel me to have the best possible life I could?" Could you explore that a little bit for us and what what you meant by that? Yeah, well, it was only 16. And at the time when you're 16, you think nothing's ever going to touch you. Bad things happen to other people and not you. So dad died really unexpectedly and it was like the rug had been pulled out from under me. And I just remember that I had a really clear, a clear understanding that I could either be the girl whose dad died and I could be like, woe is me, or I could be the person that succeeded despite the fact that I didn't have a dad and I could just kind of get on with life and I've made a really clear decision to do that because I think you see that now so often people saying bad happens to someone and they just get stuck there and they blame it and you know I'm a firm believer that you're responsible for everything that happens to you that doesn't mean that if something bad happens to you it's your fault it means the second that thing happens to you it's your responsibility now So you decide what to do with it. So you can live in that for 15 years and expect the world to feel sorry for you and give you, you know, extra because something bad happened to you. Or you can go, okay, this has happened to me. I'm not going to let it define me. I live a great life in dad's honour. I succeed despite it all. And it's my responsibility now. And I took that really seriously. And um, at times too seriously, I've had times I've had to be like, okay, slow down. The world's not going to like crumble if you aren't the best at everything. And I'm learning that as I get older. 
But yeah, I think does that does that answer the question? Totally, yeah, it absolutely does. Great. And I wonder where that comes from, though, because I think a lot of sixteen-year-olds mm. would have something similar happen to them and not respond that way. Yeah, I think I grew up in church, and um, while I don't go to church anymore, it kind of forces you to weigh things up, and it forces you to have tough conversations. It forces you to see the bigger picture as well, because you, we have this belief in the afterlife and belief in a higher power. So I think my whole life I'd been around church communities where we openly talked about emotions and people challenged you on things. And also I'm from a like ethnic family where like 10 people could spank me growing up, you know what I mean, or tell me if I was being a little dickhead. So I think, I don't know, I, I'd had a lot of people who expected me to win and expected me to, you know, do a good job and... I don't know, I just always had a sense my whole life that I had to do something great and I still have that sense, you know, and I think in some ways I've, I've achieved a lot that I'm really proud of but I don't think I'll ever stop having that feeling that there's more for me and I've got to push myself to do more, sometimes to my detriment. <laughs> you seem really driven. Was that always the case and did you always know what you were actually driven towards? When did you decide mm. that you wanted to be in the media? I've always been driven. I always knew that I wanted to entertain. Um, like, you know, I was always in the plays in primary school and high school and I always had a real passion for music. And I think I said to my mum once when I was a kid, but what will I do if I'm not famous? And then, you know, now that I'm like, you know, F-grade celebrity on a G maybe, <laughs> I'm like, I can't, fame is gross. Like I, this is as famous as I ever want to be because it's – you have no life, especially in this world. But I think um, I always was good at telling stories. That's that's the best way I can put it. I was always good at writing stories and, you know, if there's a group of people, it always been me that was the one that was like telling a story about my family or something. So I think I always wanted to tell stories. And then, um, of course, there's a music side of my life, which is something I always wanted to be involved with, but I'm not, you know, I can hold a tune, but... Growing up, I had a lot of musician friends who were, like, freakishly talented. So I always knew that I was never like that. But I wanted to be in that world. Um, so it started off, yeah, kind of more music journalism on the other side of the, you know, microphone slash camera. And then it kind of naturally evolved as I kind of started doing it and thought, no, I think I want to actually, like, I want to be on TV or I want to be on the radio. I really – I think I'm as good as the other people that are, you know, doing it. So I kind of like really put it out to the universe and and I just always knew it would happen though in this weird way. What was it about music that you fell in love with? How did you fall in yeah. love with music? Because I'm not particularly in love with music, nor are you. I try desperately, but yeah. the interesting part about listening to you on radio is I can like genuinely sense how in love with music you are and it's very infectious. Oh, like I, I want to so. hear you. your knowledge about music because I really feel like you know what you're talking about. Yeah. So where did that come from? How did you fall in love with it? Yeah, well... The youngest I can remember, I had an older brother who's a musician, and a drummer, so we listened to a lot of like, you know, U2 and Smashing Pumpkins and cool music like that, which I liked because my brother liked it. And then I was really into musicals. I don't know what it was. I think it was just the bigness of it all, you know, and like Rent and Les Mis and I, I know the whole Rent soundtrack from start to finish. I was too young to even understand like the context of what they were talking about. <laughs> like it took me like six years to realise that, that the bag of – powder was like cocaine I didn't get it but I knew all the words so it was the musicals the music and then we moved to the Philippines when I was like I think about 10 or 11 so I came from Melbourne where I was just like everyone else to the Philippines where I was not like anyone else you know it was a really small expat community and we had MTV and I just watched MTV all day and this was in like 99 98 99 where it was like you know, oops, I did it again. Baby, one more time. NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, peak Ricky MTV Martin, era. peak, peak, like TRL, all of that stuff. And I lived for it. I was obsessed with it because they were like my friends, the people on you know, on um, MTV and the, like pop music. Just, oh, it did it for me. And then like you know, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill album. You know, I like I cry when I hear songs of it now because. When I listened to it, I am um, that first year in the Philippines where I had no friends and it was just me and my, it was a cassette and mum didn't let me listening to it because it had the F word in it <laughs> and I was badass. So it, it was so much connected with my sense of place in the world and, you know, figuring it all out. I was in this foreign country but I still had my music. So I think it was deeply personal for me. 
um, yeah, that's where, that's where the passion comes from. And, and also I just, I am quite musical, so I can get a sense of it quite easily and I can hear when the producer's the same and I can tell, you know, I, I just have a natural sense for it not to be a musician. <laughs> I would be horrible at that. I think it's really interesting because I think when someone has a passion like you do or has an aspiration to do something in music or do something in the media, that's great. But actually piecing together a career can be mm. really quite difficult. Totally. Something I found really interesting from you was in 2018 you spoke to Now to Love about the role that Andrew O'Keefe, he played a really, really small role. <laughs> so weird. But you went on Deal or No Deal and yeah. when your friends won $30,000 yeah. and Andrew O'Keefe said something really simple to you that you yeah. had the gift of the gab. Yeah. How and who are the people along the way who have yeah. kind of been your dot connectors and gotten you yeah. or given you a little push that you needed to get here? It's been – it's a really great question. Um, I think I had a drama teacher in high school called Mrs. Mikado and she always gave me the lead role in the musicals <laughs> and she always just really kind of reinforced that I was talented and then I, I was an entertainer and a storyteller. Obviously my mum and dad are number one, you know, like – Number one, that goes without saying. And Mrs. Mikado, and then honestly, the, the pivotal Andrew O'Keefe moment. Um, when I got back, I moved to London that week, you know, after I won the money. And when I came back, I was working as a copywriter for a company that made music content, music radio shows. And Osha Gunsberg was uh, hosting uh, the Hot Hits Live from LA, which is one of the shows that I um, like wrote ads for. And I wrote, I, you know, I would help him out with some interview prep every now and then. And he knew that I was smart and he knew that I could write a good interview. So even though he was in LA and I was in Australia, we, you know, had a bit of a professional friendship. And then um, when I saw that Channel 10 were like running a competition for this new music show, he was the first person I emailed. I was like, oh, I think I want to do this. Do you think I could do it? He was like, absolutely, you can do it. Do your demo. Send it to me. And so he was a big one for me. Set me up with my first manager. Still checks in on me now. And he's really proud, like not in a condescending way, like I'm proud of you, young Padawan, but really just stoked for me. Um, so Osha, Andrew keep weirdly enough, for that little... <laughs> Does he know digital. that? No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe I should tell him. Um and Craig Bruce, who um, was the head of the Hit Network when I got my first radio job, um, I'd never wanted to really do radio. I thought I'd be bad at it. I thought I wanted to stay in TV. And then he, um, you know, we had a conversation a couple of years ago, you know, downstairs from my now studio at Grilled, and I just trusted him straight away. And we just really bonded, and I felt a real kind of fatherly figure. And um, he he gave me so much great, you know, life and work advice and and um really made me feel like I had something even when I like felt like I was so shit at radio because I really was when I started like I didn't know what I was Isn't doing. Isn't everyone though? Like of these course. people are so yeah. important because like you need to start somewhere and if totally. you don't have someone take you under your wing, yeah. like we did with lots of people as well, it's so it's not really much to them but to you it means the world. Totally, of course. And he was so good to me in that respect. And similarly, my co-host, Angus O'Loughlin, like, oh my gosh, if I was as good as him back then and got given me to work with, <laughs> I would have been like, oh. But he was so patient with me and he like – just taught me how to do radio. It was night radio, so the pressure's off. It's not like breakfast where it's like everything gets critiqued. It was nights. And he was so patient with me, taught me how to do a hook, which is something we do in radio where you tease what's coming up in the show. Sounds simple. Very hard to do concisely. I didn't know what – it would take me two minutes. I'd tell the whole story of what – and give it all away. And this he'd is what I'm like, wearing. And yes. This is when come to so he'd be like, okay, I'm going to back announce a song. You're going to do a hook and then we're going to do an open. I'd be like, great. And then I'd write it all down and then it would get to it and I would just blank on air. And I would stare at him and being like, I don't know what to say. And he'd, you know, so – he and he's still both of the. I don't work with Craig or Angus anymore, but I speak to Angus every day. Craig came from Adelaide and had dinner with us last week. So these are, you know, both of those guys have stayed in my life, and I certainly wouldn't be where I am without them. So you apply for the competition to host the loop, yeah, you win that competition. Do you remember how many people applied for that? It was like 1,200. Crazy. It was 1,300 I- based on the research. <laughs> I told you we've Thank been, you. We've been in it all day. And were you surprised that you got it? No, I knew it was my job the yeah. second I sent off my audition. Not because I did such a great job. Although I did a great job. Um, <laughs> I just knew it was my 
like destiny is such a lame word, but I just had a real sense that this was the start for me and it was go time. So you are on the loop and then you jump over to radio yeah. and you're on the show with Angus O'Loughlin. And I think what I find most interesting about your career is you were on air for, was it a year yeah. before you decided to walk away? Yeah. Can you walk us through that decision? Because I think for a lot of people and in a lot of interviews I've read from you, you, th- you said, I understand for a lot of people this would have been their dream totally. job. Totally. But course. I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. What was it that you didn't like? Hmm. I have a really... I have high expectations for my life and that doesn't mean like achievements. It means being happy every day and feeling like I'm being of value every day. So I just knew that I wasn't doing what I like. It just was the wrong place at the wrong time. With hindsight, it was all meant to be, you know, but at the time I just come out of a relationship, a been dumped. Um, and I was like crying every day at work. It was so sad. It was so sad. I did it one day. And <laughs> I was like, two months after this guy dumped me, I'm like crying at work. And Angus just <laughs> swivels his chair around. He looks at me. I'm like, I love him. And he goes, Ash, he doesn't love you. If he loved you, he would be here. But he's not here because he doesn't love you. So you need to move on now. And everyone was like, <gasps> in front of everyone. And I was like, no, he's right. No, you, yeah, you're right. And I was like this, like, <laughs> turn around, this moment where I was like, oh, you're so sad. He doesn't love you. Like, he's not crying. Only you are. Um, that's a tangent, though. <laughs> um, I just knew that I wanted to put a, a certain brand of energy out into the world, and it wasn't possible on that show. It was a great show and an awesome show, but Night Radio had a very specific brand back then, and it was kind of, it was pushing the envelope. It was entertainment and bright lights and whistles and that's what it was you know and that's fine but I couldn't do that you know I'm this is more my vibe I want to talk about things that matter to me and um I just felt like I wasn't being true to myself on the show and I felt like I was like stealing someone else's job you know because I knew that so many girls were like busting their nuts in Dubbo and Bunbury and you know Shepparton and places in um, regional radio dreaming that one day they could have a national night show and here I was like not wanting to go to work every day or like looking at the clock during my live radio show thinking when can I go home you're at the beach right I totally was (laughs) I was like can't wait I would rather be at the beach right now I can't wait so I knew that that wasn't going to cut it and that was actually really kind of disrespecting Angus and disrespecting the work so I called my manager and I was like, um, and I'd already quit the loop at this point. And I was like, yeah, I'm out. And she was like, Ugh. and rightly so. She played devil's advocate and was like, you know, you don't quit jobs in the media. You know, there aren't a lot of jobs. And I was like, yep, I know, but I've got to do what's right for me. And I just don't feel like this is it. I can't, I, this isn't me. I don't, I don't, it's not me. And um, so she, yeah, the company, and I think I did it nicely. I wasn't like, you suck, radio sucks, I'm out of here. I was like, this is the greatest job ever, but it's I'm not enjoying it. So what sees me being here, I want someone else to do it that will do a better job and respect it. And then I like quite literally ran away and spent all my money. Where did you go? Um, the first, I went to Asia for a while, like Bali and all that stuff. And then I landed in the Philippines. Um, my best friend from the Philippines I'd grown up with was now a diving instructor in this little island, which was like a nine-hour journey from the closest airport. It was like a bus and then a car and a bus and a boat and a, you know, walk um, called Malapascua. And I just spent a couple of months there just like bumming around. You didn't eat, pray, love. I actually didn't. And I read Eat, Pray, Love. I was like, I may as well reread it. And I read Big Magic by the same writer, Elizabeth Gilbert, and I found that incredibly inspiring, all about creativity and the expectations we place on creativity and that it's this magical thing that we don't own and it will visit us and that if we have an idea and don't do anything, the idea will take itself to somebody else. So it was a really good time for me. And then um, I went from there. I disappeared to London for a while because I love London. I stayed with my friend Georgia on her, like, the shit. It was like the sh- it was like a blanket for a mattress. It was so bad. A little double Ikea mattress in <laughs> East London. And I tried um, desperately to to get it. Well, I had all these, you know, job interviews lined up but couldn't get a visa. So I um, met with, like, 
you know, Radio 1, with Kiss, with Capital, and they were like, well, you know, you're awesome. Where's your visa? We can't – so I couldn't get a visa. Brexit had just happened. And this is like – I think this is a story I've never actually told before because I, like, forgot it happened for a bit until, like – I just forget how good this story is. So. <laughs> Exclusive. <laughs> so it's, like, the last day – I've been off work maybe for, like, nine months at this time. I'm, like, out of funds. London's not working. Um you know, like the first day I got there, I met with like the head of programming at Radio One. I had this like awesome meeting. He was so great. He watched my stuff. He, you know, was so encouraging, but he's like, get a visa and come back. Couldn't get a visa. So like two months later, um, the head of the network at the time, who still is Gemma, um, that I'm at now, calls me or calls my manager. She's like, oh, look, there's a job that's come up. It's like a weekend music show. Would Ash be interested? And my manager called me and I was like, no, hang up. And then she called back. She's like, why don't you just be open to it? You know, like come home. You don't have to, it's not full time. You can just dip your toe back in. I was like, fine. Since it's the only job I have and I'm, my visas that I can't, I'm out of money. I may as well just go home. And I was like, Ugh. so my best friend, Vanessa, who's now living in London at the time, she's the girl from the scuba diving in the Philippines. We follow each other around the world for our whole lives. She's driving me to Heathrow Airport to go home, to leave. I feel like I'm like, you know, giving up on the dream. It's like I thought I was going to live in London and be on Radio 1. And you literally I'm... felt like you were making a mistake. Oh, yeah. I was oh. like, I fucked it up. I fucked it. Like I left a great job. I'm out of money. I thought I was going to – I believed that I was going to be in London and it hasn't happened for me. I've, I've failed. I've somehow stepped out of the magical path of my life. So we're on the um, freeway and I am the most hungover human in the world. <laughs> Everybody thinks they're the most hungover. Oh no, human no one has been the world when they're hungover. Oh. <laughs> and I'm and I've got a 24-hour journey ahead of me. Yeah. So what an idiot, right? Oh, totally. So I'm like trying to put my face out the window to get air, but it's like to, we're going too fast, and I'm like crying because I didn't want to leave London. And you know, um, Vanessa goes, "Why don't we put the radio on? It's it's radio on. It's breakfast time. You can hear Nick Grimshaw. It'll cheer you up." And I hadn't listened to any radio for the whole couple of months that I'd been there. I'd had my meeting with the radio stations the first day, hadn't even turned it on. So we turn on the radio and Nick Grimshaw's talking about One Direction. And he's like, blah, 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 blah. I actually, we uncovered an old interview from One Direction from, in, from Australia from a couple of years ago. That, um, so, and I turned it up because I was like, maybe it's Hamish and Andy or Angus. And I turned it up and my own voice comes out at me it was like an interview I had done five years previous and Vanessa looks at me she's like shut the fuck up and I was like shit and I was like is this a joke has she like recorded it and it was the real radio and it was literally as I turned it on like between turning it on and hearing my own voice was maybe seven seconds so I had this real peace just wash over me that like and we both looked at each other we're like, I'm going to be fine. Like it was, it was the universe's way of saying there's, there's a path for you and you're on the path. You're not fucked. You're going to be fine. I've got you. I've totally got you back. That is and like the most serendipitous moment right? I've ever heard. It was insane. And the tears stopped. And I was like, okay, right, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do this. And then I came back to meet about a you know a weekly radio show, and by the end of the meeting, I had a my own night show that I could build myself from the ground up. And then a month after that, I met Adrian, my husband. So things it was, fell into place. It honestly fell into place. And I think, and I know that if I hadn't come home when I did, I would could still be you know you know I could be pouring drinks in London or whatever. But. Um, it was an amazing reminder for me, and I still remember that now. And I, whenever I think, "Oh, am I doing the right thing?" I mean, no, I'm fine. Like, there's, there's, you know, there's, um, there's meaning in all of this craziness. It's the best story. Coming up after the break, what it's like to be trolled by millions of angry One Direction fans. But first, a word from today's sponsor. In a lot of the interviews we read from you lately, there is a link between them, and that is Gemma Fordham, your yeah. boss. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about how when you did come back and you sat down, you had a lot of parameters about how you wanted to work in radio and the kind of radio totally. content you wanted to produce. 
Can you talk about how important it's been to you mm. to have a strong female boss and a yeah. female mentor in yeah. Gemma? Well, for me, it, it doesn't make a difference if she's a unicorn, a man or a woman. I'm happy that she's a woman because it's cool to have more women running networks. But she um, totally just gave me the freedom to – she trusted me. I think that's what it was. She trusted me. And at that time, I don't think I really even trusted myself. But she was like, no, you know what you want to do and you can trust what you want to do. So tell me what you're passionate about and what is going to make you happy and be a setup that is good for you and we'll see if we can do that. Now, usually it's the opposite. It's like this is the things that you're going to do. and Shut if up. You, yeah, exactly, and fill the little whatever mould we need. But this was the opposite and I was like, you know, when they're thinking she's never, they're never going to let me do what I want so I, I can tell her to piss off and go back to London. But she was like, no, like try your best. Like get, come at us with your worst. And then, um, yeah, we did it. So it's been incredible to have that sort of freedom. And, you know, I mean, it's different when you're in breakfast or a drive because, you know, the stakes are higher. But it was an amazing learning curve for me to do nights um, with a little team and I've I learned to just trust my gut and trust my own ear and that is thanks to her giving me that opportunity, which no one gets that opportunity. Certainly no women, like in you know, in the media now and in radio especially. And we're getting so much better, but you know, and it's my favorite thing now when girls who are like like on radio regionally or in like uni or whatever, I hear from them and that's the best when they're like, If you can do it, I can do it. I'm like, Hell yeah, like I didn't study radio. I don't actually know what I'm doing. So the fact that you like have way more experience than me means you'll be fine. In December 2017, you had a really interesting sort of online confrontation with mm. Tomlinson from One Direction. And I think being a woman who works on radio and is always talking about things comes with yeah. a particular torrent of abuse. Can you talk to that time and how aggressive that abuse was? Because you shut down your socials totally. after it too. Yeah, it was one of the most traumatic things that's ever happened to me, to be honest. And I think it's really hard to explain how vulnerable you feel and how it, it was, yeah, it was traumatic. So... I pride myself in my passion for music and respecting artists. And, you know, I don't do interviews where I put artists on the spot or embarrass them. That's just not my brand. And, you know, and all the record labels know that and the artists know that. And it had taken me, you know, seven, eight years to get that trust. And I felt like in one misunderstanding, it was all just torn to shreds. And I was being painted, you know, worldwide as... Um, you know, someone who hated him and who – and I had never said that, you know. I, you made I, a joke about his facial hair, right? Yeah, and and the boys – I was trying to explain what he looked like. I was like the one, you know. And the boys that I was, spoke, you know, talking with were making jokes and I was saying, no, no, like he's actually put out this single and it's really good and played this interview. Now, everything the boys said, of course, got attributed to me and then my offhand joke got taken out of context. So – I couldn't control what had happened. It just snowballed and I had, you know, over a million tweets within, you know, two days, I think. And it was vile, really vile stuff. So I didn't feel safe. And that I think was the hardest part is that my work was my safe place. And all of a sudden I didn't feel safe at all because I felt like anything that I said could be taken out of context, that people are always going to find something negative in what I was trying to say and really stopped trusting my own ability to communicate and that's something I still struggle with two years later I get palpitations if I feel like something I've said might be taken out of context and I'll I'll ruminate over it for days and speak to producers and they'll be like Ash it's fine like what you said was actually fine I'm like you know but, but what if but what if you know and the world moves on the internet moves on and you know the internet isn't real Twitter isn't real it's not a real world and of course I know that but um at the time it was horrid, you know, it was absolutely horrid and I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. But the support I got from, you know, the people that I care about, you know, I had Bridget Hustwaite from Triple J send me like sunflowers with the most beautiful note about how I bring sunshine and happiness, you know. And I had people from all all of the record labels reach out and say, mate, we love you, you're so good at what you do and, you know, we're behind you. And so I received a lot of support. But it was a pretty horrendous time and I'm still kind of dealing with the ramifications of that, what was really quite traumatic. 
you can look at it on this and go, well, who cares? Like it's, you know, some people on an internet forum said they wanted to murder you or hoped you died. But when it's happening to you and you just feel so unsafe, I think that's the word I would use. I just stopped feeling safe. But, you know, I've learned a lot and I'm learning a lot. And if anything, it was good for my internet addiction. <laughs> <laughs> but what does what do you learn from that? Because it's not like you said mm. the wrong thing. It's not like you can take a lesson from it and say, "Well, I won't do that again." Yeah, because you did nothing wrong. Yeah, I think I learned that I have to I have to back myself and trust myself, and I can't control other people. Mm. And that's whether it's a million angry fans or my husband or my colleagues like you can't control other people so you can do all you want on your own turf but if people want to misunderstand if people want to you know make judgments about you it's not on me like and that's a lesson I'm still learning but I had to like learn that I am a good person that experience on Twitter coincided with you going through some stuff with your own mental health and mm. mental illness how do you cope with that now do you have anything in place day to day that helps you so deal much with anxiety? <laughs> yeah that I meditate I am doing my best over the past couple of weeks to get back to the gym and get fit again um I have really great friends but also like I struggle with anxiety you know I, I hate flying now and I find it really hard to get on a plane and I I'm a platinum frequent flyer like I fly a lot and every every second that I'm on a flight I'm anxious which sucks you know and that used to be something that I, I love to travel mm. and now I find that so it's it rears its ugly disgusting despicable head up in many ways but you know I, I see a psychologist I'm doing all the things that you know I, I have to do to keep my head above the water um but yeah I I, I live a really good life and I'm really happy and it's, there are just moments where I kind of get a bit triggered or I feel you know like I things are slipping out of my control and I think because of that situation where I had no control I couldn't go and tell a million people face to face I'm actually a really good person and I've been misunderstood so I had to let people believe what they wanted to believe that's all part of the journey for me and and of that of not being able to control everything and I can't be perfect and if people think I'm an idiot that's okay I'm not an idiot <laughs> they're wrong yeah <laughs> I, a couple of months ago, you were announced as the permanent replacement for Emma Shiano on um, Sydney Breakfast on Sydney Breakfast Radio, which is a huge gig. And when the SMH announced your permanent sort mm. of spot on that show, they wrote in news that will surprise no one. It's finally been confirmed that Ash London will be the next person to sit from Today FM's poisoned chalice. Was that daunting jumping into a role that yeah. historically has been very hard to crack? Yeah. Well, no, because at the end of the day, no one's going to blame me. Like, no one's going to be like, Ash London ruined Today FM. <laughs> the perfect radio. Yeah. Time. So um, I, I did it because I love Gran and Ed. I love Jace, you know, the, the boss, you know, and it was a challenge and I love a challenge. So I knew that, you know, and I was at the point now where I know that none of this defines me. Like my job and my success and ratings don't define me, you know, like – my close relationships define me. The way I treat the earth defines me. The way I treat people defines me. You know, like that defines me, not my bloody job. Like Audience share. <laughs> yeah, totally. And the reality is this is radio. I'm going to have 15 more shows hopefully before I retire. We don't, you know, unless you're very lucky and very good, you know, no one has a 10-year show. We, It's like I will work at all the networks by the time I'm 50 and I'll forget, you know. So um, I I didn't feel the pressure, to be honest, because it's the same office I've worked in every day for seven years and it's the same people. I knew all the producers. I knew all the promo people. It's They're my people. So I considered it an honour and, you know, rose to the challenge and I still don't really feel the pressure, to be honest. I know that whether it's in, you know – a month or two years or 10 years that I move on to the next gig, that'll be the right time and I'll be fine. It's just radio. Like, it's just radio. <laughs> it's the best job in the world and I don't want to do anything else ever. But if I have to, that's okay. Did it, No one's going to die. You know, we're just... We're not saving babies. <laughs> no. So I can't, 
No, I don't. I honest, and I honestly mean that. I get like stressed about the future because it's not like an accountant where you get a job and you get a 10K pay increase every year and you stay at a firm for 20 years. It's nothing like that. But I, I, it's exciting, you know. It's fun. Talk to us about the highlights of the job. You meet a lot of pretty famous, influential people. You've met Ed Sheeran what four times? You get I think a it's like photo. it's like six now. We've with got four piggyback four, photos. Four, four piggyback photos. <laughs> who yeah. are the best people you've met? Who are the ones who have left a lasting impression yeah. on you? Well, Ed Sheeran because he is the most famous person, but he's so normal, and even when you sit and chat with him, and I honestly mean this, you just forget he's famous. Because there's no pretense, there's no, like, I'm better than you. And I like, I mean that so truly. He's just a legend and he remembers you and he's lovely. I met Robin Williams and I grew up watching, like, you know, Good Morning Vietnam and, like, all his movies. So meeting him was like a real spin out. He was a darling with his big gorilla hands, his big hairy hands, and he held my hands. And he was like, you're going to be great. Aww. So good. Um uh, more recently, like starting to um, join the team on Have You Been Paying Attention, which is like my favorite show, like legitimately. It's so funny. We gave it a shout out on the last episode and someone came into our Facebook group and was like, thank God other people are recognizing that this is the most underrated show on it's television. It's so funny. It's, it's so the best. They have to like, I laugh so hard when I'm on the panel that hair and makeup have to come and like fix my eyes because I'm crying. <laughs> I'm like a fan that gets like, how many times do you get to go on your favorite TV show? <laughs> It blows my fucking mind because I love it so much. So that's a big highlight because I proved that I could do something that I never thought I could do. Like when they first like, floated it with me, I was like, me? <laughs> what? Because I was like, but I'm not a comedian. And they're like, no, but you work on radio and it's very similar. You know what's happening in the world. You're maybe funnier than you think. You're smart. And I was like, oh, thank you. Thank the you. first time you made the audience laugh, you're like, oh, my God. I'm oh, God. <laughs> I'm standing up. It was the best. I just stood up. <laughs> it was. It's like a high because, like, you know, I'm on radio, so like my co-host will just give me a fake laugh. Like yeah, yeah, if yeah. I if I got a three out of ten joke, but the audiences are unforgiving. They'll just not laugh if it's not funny, and they laugh, and I was like, <laughs> I would not be able to stop grinning at my own joke. Then. Oh yeah, laughed at it. Like I would be like, right? pull yourself together. Yeah. Well, everyone else would be answering other things. You'd be like, giggling. <laughs> totally. And I've watched it back on Foxtel and I just like rewind my joke. And once my husband came home and I was watching myself back and he was like, that is so uncool. And I was like, well, no one will ever know. And now I've just (laughs) told it on your podcast. (laughs) Yeah. So that was a big highlight. And then I love the travel. Like I get to, I get to like go overseas to like Mm. chat to people. That's sick. That's awesome. It's a really cool job. I think working in the media, once you kind of take out all the shitty aspects that can come with it, it's pretty crazy. It's the best. What we get paid for. We get Paid to do the best things. Yeah. And I didn't get paid to do it for a long time. You know, I was so poor for so long. <laughs> so um, it now kind of evens out. Like I get paid well now, but if you even it out since 20, it's like a normal person. Laura <laughs> <laughs> averages. Oh, God, I was so poor. Uh, you also said in a recent interview that once you get into your 30s, a lot of things clear out of your life. You have to back your choices and trust yourself. It's exciting. A lot of the people that listen to our podcast are younger than 30. So we thought the most interesting question we could come up for you is what are the big lessons that you took from your 20s? Oh, my God. Fuck, I love I'm my 30s sit so back much. And listen to <laughs> I think in my 20s, I didn't learn anything. I just made all the mistakes to learn from. Like, I cared way too much about boys and relationships. Like, thank you. Jesus, that I didn't meet my husband until I was 31. If I'd met him at 27, I never would have looked twice. I would have been like, no, I want a boy on a motorbike. He's creative. (laughs) And instead I got this like nerd burger, but he's the greatest man that's ever walked the face of the earth because he's kind and he has integrity and he adores me and the things that actually will sustain a marriage. So so I, I don't worry about meeting the love of your life in your 20s you have so much time your 20s is for figuring out what the hell excites you and sets your heart on fire and I think I did that with all my traveling and my mistakes and my quitting and my you know kind of restarting I think I also learned like I was my family calls me El Crapo because I am just El Crapo like I once boarded a flight from Singapore somewhere and didn't realize till two hours into the flight that I had just left my hand luggage in the lounge. Oh, no. 
like I had my passport and my ticket and my phone and a wallet in my hand and I was like, I've left my luggage. Oh, my God. So that was the kind of person I was and I was forever having to like make up for put in like 200% more effort to fix something that would have been 3%. So I did a lot of that and a lot of shaming myself for it and feeling like a piece of shit. So I had to like – it was actually my mum that was like, no more old crapper, that's not you. You need to leave that label behind and take responsibility for yourself. So I've learned to do that, but I needed my 20s and I needed a couple of like standout instances where I really fucked up and disappointed people through my like what I think I blame on my creative mind, but it was just laziness, you know. So I'm I'm learning that and finances in my 20s. That was pretty bad. I just didn't take care of my finances and once again, I blamed my creative brain, but like that's bullshit. Like if you're in your 20s and you don't know about superannuation or don't have a savings plan or, you know, think you're never going to buy a house, like take responsibility for your money now because there was a lot of undoing that I had to do to mm. figure out. Like when my husband met me and I was 31 and I like hadn't paid – oh, the A2 listening. <laughs> I hadn't sorted my super out, you know, and I hadn't had no savings and he was like – what the hell? How is this possible? Yeah. And then he had to like give me a debit card preloaded with money on it and that was my spending, which sounds like so bad, but I needed that. Wow. And I wish someone had taught me like when I was like 22 how to deal with money because I am I was so bad and I'm only just learning. And also I bought to feel better. You know, I bought things because it made me feel good and there's a real psychology in that. The, the, the psychology of money and spending oh, is yeah. just so layered. Absolutely. And it took me like three years to unravel and I'm still unraveling it. Like my psychologist is near a Camilla and Mark store. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so either when I have nervous energy about going to the psychologist before or afterwards when I'm like, the catharsis of the world, I will go and buy something at my favorite store because it makes me feel good. So I've had to learn to like, not like stop buying stuff. Tell Camilla and Mark to lock the door. Oh my God. They should be like, get out London. (laughs) But really ask myself, why am I making this purchase? Is it because I need it for my life or is it because it's just going to make me feel good for like two minutes? Mm. So I have stopped buying shit and I honestly mean that and now I like save money and I feel like very such, adult it's so adult but also I'm 33 and I'm married and like we had to buy it so I I'm so proud of myself and um I mean it was embarrassing to have to have a debit card that my husband was like <laughs> you can spend this much of my own money but I'm really glad for that because now you know we're in a great position and I've learned and but I wish someone had taught me in my 20s you know, just sort sort it out with a little bit of money now. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> Speaking of your husband, am I right in that you both opened a meditation studio? Yeah, in we Melbourne? did. In Melbourne. Why and then in Melbourne, first of all, and then I want to hear about why you both love meditation so much. Well, we lived in Melbourne and he was about to take his long service leave and we just had the idea and we're like, Well, stuff it. Let's just do it and you know, like and then three months later I got a job in Sydney and we were like Ugh. so it wasn't great timing um but the process in itself was an incredible learning curve because you know we jumped into something we knew nothing about but just loved because we thought it would be a cool thing to do for people and our intention really was just we just want a place in the city where people can come and meditate um because we it was so helpful to me and is still so helpful to me to um switch off my phone and take five minutes ten minutes an hour of just me time and I highly recommend that everyone does it and so many people think they can't meditate everyone can meditate even if it's for five minutes just breathing in and out that's meditating so yeah that was a huge learning experience for us and you know I'm so sad because we had to make the decision do I take this job uh, and move to Sydney or do we stay here and, and, and kind of continue so we thought look you know we're gonna do it like I just knew I just had this sense inside me that we had to be in Sydney and Adrian being the best husband in the world was like, cool, I'll find a job. And um, we just left and we came. So we wrapped up Kindred and we still got all the stuff. And I think, you know, maybe we'll open it up in in Sydney when life comes down again, if it ever comes down. Um, But it was just one of those things. We just wanted to do it. And I'm so proud that we did it. And it was the best. And we still have all the mats. So I get to meditate (laughs) on these like really chic meditation mats at home. What's next for you? 
Who the fuck knows? I have no, honestly don't know. Worst question to ask a radio person. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. And I think that's kind of why I, I love it. I think if I knew exactly um, what I wanted to do, I would really be bored and probably like run away to London again. But I want to write. It's kind of, it's been a huge passion of my whole life, but I lack discipline. So I think um, I need to um, just do it. So I have like 25 started things projects of all different descriptions and genres so I think I want to um, have the discipline to write I'll continue doing radio in whatever form that evolves into whether it's you know breakfast for 10 years or I, mean, I think Ashland and Live will never die until I die <laughs> like I'll never let go because it's my great passion in life is music and lots of travel and um but I start thinking about babies and shit I don't know where I'll fit them. <laughs> and also the idea of growing a human. It's a lot. It's a lot for me. Mm. I'm waiting for like the like the hormonal thing the to happen. Cluckiness yeah. To no, in. I have the cluckiness. Okay. I look at babies and I'm like, give me five. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the idea of it growing in me. Right. But that'll come. Like we're in no rush. My mum is in a rush. She's like dying to As be a grandmother. As mums always are. My exactly. grandma was in a rush for me to get pregnant when I was 16. Hello, yeah. nanny, if you're listening. Yeah, no. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> so I'm I'm just open to the universe. I'm open to whatever I, is meant for me. And I trust myself to know now when things come, whether they're meant for me or whether they're not. So I am 0% stressed. And that is a wonderful feeling That's to be. That's the way to be. We yeah. always finish with the same question as well, which is how do you measure and define success in your own life? I'd measure success by the kind of energy that I'm putting out into the world and the effect on people that I'm having, which sometimes can't be quantified, but I have to trust that every day, like my word is joy. So I have to trust that every day I am putting joy out into the world and I measure it by very few relationships in my life. So there's, you know, two or three people who are my, you know, people are my priorities and I, um, yeah, they're the people that I can get a gauge on. The people that will say, you're doing great or the people that will be like you being a dickhead (laughs) and everyone else doesn't really matter. Ash, thank you so much. You have been up incredibly early this morning and it's been a long work day and we so appreciate your time. No and stress. for being such a ray of sunshine, just generally, we have loved having you on. Yeah, because it's brought us a lot of joy, so thank you. That's yeah. my – I'm so happy. Head on the pillow, <laughs> successful day. Yay! <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Ash London. If you love Ash as much as we loved having her on the show, follow her on Instagram at ash underscore London. And for us, well, as always, we're on Instagram at Shameless Podcast or on Facebook at Shameless Podcast Community. We will see you guys on Monday. Oh, hi, it's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week. Now, every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.